You are now listening to the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast. Wait, the answer was add 10 gallons? Add 10 gallons. My first thought was we got to put active children. Yeah, great. <laughs> Trucks on the, on the way. On the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. I've got two observations, uh, neither of which are really educated or well thought out. <laughs> <laughs> Which are like most of my observations are. There aren't a lot of problems at a job site that can't be solved with a sack full of business. Today's episode of the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast is brought to you by Actigel 208. Actigel 208 is a high-performance additive for the concrete industry that is greatly beneficial to the producer. It enables them to increase the percentage of manufactured sand by up to 100% and completely replace all the natural sand in the mix. In areas where natural sand is scarce, inconsistent, and expensive, this provides a huge benefit to any ready-mix company out there. Benefits of manufactured sand and concrete include consistent air content, improved compaction, and increased density. Now in the past, the downside of using manufactured sands was that they were hard to pump, hard to place, and hard to finish. Well, Actigel 208 solves all those issues. By improving suspension, stability, and the quality of the cement paste in the mix, Actigel overcomes the old issues with manufactured sand and leaves them behind. Let Actigel 208 improve the quality of your mix while saving money on every yard you produce. For more information, visit us at actigel.com. That's A-C-T-I-G-E-L dot com. All right, welcome in everybody to episode two of the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast. If you were here for episode one, we certainly appreciate you and we appreciate you coming back. Uh, if you weren't around for episode one, it is available for download wherever you get your podcasts. Go and listen to that. Ryan Betts from Argos USA was our guest. Uh, a lot of interesting tidbits, information, stories. You might even find it entertaining, or at least we hope so. Uh, but here in episode two, we're back and we have Mason Guarino from South Shore Gunite. We'll bring him in later and talk with him a little bit. But in the meantime, we're going to go over some things that we find in the industry that are pretty cool right now. In the last episode, we talked about uh, online conferences. We talked about uh, cool things, cool jobs that are made with shotcrete uh, from people that we know. Um, and we also talked about concrete and space. Paul got to nerd out a little bit about concrete and space and and the possibilities of that. Um, But in this episode, we have some new articles and we're bringing back the guys to talk about them. Paul, how you doing, man? Good, man. Looking forward to talking about some interesting things today. Awesome. Joe, you doing all right? Yeah, I'm doing excellent. Good, man. Good. Like I said, Paul got to nerd out about concrete and space in the last episode. I'm going to nerd out a little bit today um, and talk about an article that I read from Science Daily. The title is A Bio-Inspired Addition to Concrete Stops the Damages Caused by a Freeze Thaw. Initially, I thought, all right, sweet, they're going to put antifreeze in concrete. Uh, why, why haven't I thought of that? <laughs> but, but in fact, it, it is a little bit different. And I want to differentiate what antifreeze is as opposed to what we're going to talk about. Antifreeze is either ethylene glycol or propylene glycol. Uh, your ethylene glycol is your toxic stuff that you put into your vehicle. The propylene glycol can be used for um, bio-friendly antifreeze. It's common in RV and marine grade antifreeze. And it's also in some pharmaceuticals and some food grade things. 
it's mixed with vegetable glycerin and used in e-cigarettes. So your propylene glycol is your safe stuff. And then in antifreeze, methanol is also um, always a component of that. But in this, what these guys are using, they're using uh, polyethylene glycol and polyvinyl alcohol and a graph between the two. They're working with different loading levels, but each element of that, the polyethylene glycol, PEG, and the polyvinyl alcohol, PVA, both bring some interesting benefits to stopping, um, in concrete's case, stopping freestall. And they do that by limiting the growth of the crystalline structure when water freezes. Um, water freezes and it expands. What they're working on here stops that expansion of the freezing water by up to 90% in concrete. So you can dial back on that air entrainment. Um, you're making the concrete less porous. You're, you're not um, sacrificing strength for a freestall and thus making a stronger concrete with less entrained air, even in areas of high freestyle. Okay, so they're tr they're not treating the symptom, which is what Aaron Trainer does. Aaron Trainer says, "Oh, you got freezing, but we can't stop that. But maybe we can stop the cracking." So the Aaron Trainer bubbles gives a place for the, the ice to grow, so it doesn't crack the concrete. In this case, they're saying, "Well, let's just prevent the ice from growing." Yeah. The, the cracking is the symptom. The ice is the disease. Let's get to the root cause of this. Mm -hmm. And this stuff actually works. Yeah, it, it works. Um, they're in initial testing right now, um, but every, everything is, is working great. Initial testing, the, the concrete mixes that they were working with withstood over 300 freestall cycles, maintained strength, maintained shape. Um, very minimal cracking, if any, in a lot of different cases. Um, so now the next step is optimizing their method by identifying new molecules that are cost effective. Um, from what I gather from the article, I mean, this is going to be substantially more more costly than just a standard air entrainment. Um, and then also taking a more cost effective approach, but making sure that that is also compatible with different concrete recipes yeah absolutely i mean this would be perfect for bridge decks where you want something strong and dense that uh, you know will protect that reinforcement bridges being so heavily reinforced and open on the bottom side this would be perfect what do you think joey no i think it would be perfect and you nailed it right there well with them being open <clears throat> they're exposed to so much more cold air and much more susceptible to freezing and ice than anything else because it's just a thin they're just thin layers of concrete you know hanging up in the air so it's i'm anxious i'm really anxious to see what what this does for everybody and anxious to see what it does for just regular you know concrete like up north you know canada and in the northern u.s where air entrainment is a huge thing because of free of freeze thaw um, so I'm, I'd be anxious to see what it does for just regular flat work and everything like that too. Where is this PEG PVA work being done? Uh, University of Colorado. Colorado. Yeah. All right. Cool. Yeah, give a shout out to Professor Who's that is doing that because uh, it is neat that this made it into science daily. Like this wasn't just floating around your normal mm -hmm. concrete cycles. This is 
a guy who did work that caught the attention of the industry, took a pharmaceutical filler and said, you know what, I can use this to stop water from freezing in concrete. So then you don't have this porous structure or a more porous structure because of the air entrainment, which, you know, we love the air entrainment for finishing and pumping purposes, but it does make the concrete weaker and you have to design around that. And you have to do that to prevent the freeze-thaw damage. So it's interesting to see that another technology from another industry uh, may have application here to make a better concrete. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there were there are six people on the journal. The the journal was published this year, uh, May of this year, actually, in the Subreports Physical Science. Um, and there's six people on there led by Shane Frazier, like I said, at, at the University of Colorado. You're, t- you're talking about mixing, uh, I guess, areas of science and research. The inspiration from this was actually they were studying plant life that is able to grow and thrive in sub-zero temperatures. And they were looking at organisms that have antifreeze per- proteins that bind to the ice crystals that inhibit the growth. So otherwise that growth would be fatal to the, the plant itself. Um, so organisms that survive in sub-zero temperature, they kind of studied how that works. And then realizing that, but like you said, treating the source, um, they're, they're able to survive. So you take that, I guess, idea or inspiration and you transcribe it over to the, the concrete world and, now we got a brand new thing to look at for freestone. That's awesome. And we love this industry, man. We're doing a podcast about it, right? But there are two issues here. And one is in the concrete industry, there's a mindset of, well, that's the way we've always done it. So that's the way we're going to do it. And then the other issue is, is although you're resist, a little bit resistant to change at times, uh, new change that does come in, that does come in has to be affordable. We're talking about a commodity product, and you hit it. To fact, the fact that these researchers included a paragraph in their paper that says we're going to try and make this cost effective—that's a win right there. Mm-hmm. Well, at least they get it. At yeah, they, they get, get it. it. Yeah. 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 Well, and and also you have two very readily used uh, components. Polyethylene glycol is used a lot in pharmaceuticals now. It's uh, it's used in a laxative. <laughs> it's it's used as well as the primary ingredient in laxatives. It's also used in um, a lot of water soluble things. It's used to preserve objects that are salvaged from like underwater graves. Wow. <laughs> yeah, like polyethylene glycol is used as uh, as like a preservation element to like old painted structures and artifacts and things like that and then when they take up like shipwreck uh, items or like wreckage from you know ships underwater graves and things like that they coat them with a polyethylene based coating and that like stops yeah it stops further erosion in a way and then the polyvinyl alcohol is also water soluble it mixes very well and, and it's used as a thickener and emulsion stabilizer um, and that's mostly used in uh, plastics, adhesives, coatings, things like that. And PBA then, is super common. Oh, yeah. In a lot of stuff. Yeah. So, you know, you say you have to make this stuff affordable. I think they have a good head start because both of these elements that they're combining together with different loading levels, they're already so readily available and so widely used. Well, it's got to be the grafting process. Because yeah. like you said, they're using a protein that they 
found in plants to bind these two things together. So whatever that process is to graft the PEG onto the PVA to make this thing, this uh, concrete antifreeze, yeah, that must be expensive. Yeah. Yep. So that's that's my uh, Josh's nerd corner for the day. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I knew a little bit about antifreeze, so I thought this article would be quick and easy. I'm like, okay, yeah, I understand that. But no, it took me down a rabbit hole, and a couple hours later, now I feel a little bit smarter. <laughs> Don't lie. You just clicked on it because it said antifreeze. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're putting car stuff and concrete stuff now. This is perfect. <laughs> I found something interesting, too. And we have two rules on this podcast. We're not going to cuss. We're not going to talk politics. I did want to take a minute to say that I saw that the government did something good. And I'm not talking about the administration. You like them, you don't like them, fine, whatever. I'm talking about like the government as a whole did something that I really appreciate that I've been saying for a long time I wish they would do. And they did something that allowed for transparency of where our tax dollars go. Fantastic. Thank you. About time. Um, so... Go to the website, artba.org slash economics. That's A-R-T-B-A dot org slash economics. So if you go there, there's a big map of the United States, and it actually shows you what amount of money the state spent uh, on highway and bridge construction using federal tax dollars. And they also show you how much state tax money went to the construction of you know, highways and bridges and stuff like that. So you can actually see a breakdown of not just the total money they spent, but then what percentage is local tax revenue being used versus federal dollars being used. And I thought it was fascinating because it didn't matter whether it was a red or blue state. They were all over the map. It didn't matter if it was East Coast, West Coast, Southern, Northern, uh, whatever, whatever region you're in or or whatever uh, you know type of governor you have, it didn't matter. It was all over the map, whether they're using a lot of federal money or a little federal money on a percentage basis as to what tax dollars are going in. So I live in Pennsylvania now, and there's people that want to gripe. They would pay a lot in taxes. You know, There's a gas tax, your other taxes. One of the highest gas taxes in the country. That goes toward the maintenance of roads and bridges. And at times, some of these roads get pretty deteriorated. So people get pretty irritated wondering, where is this money going? How much is it going? Well, now we know it's actually going and they spent a lot. They, they spent $1.1 billion from the federal government, but they spent $1.3 billion of state tax money to rehab these roads. And when you look at it, like in comparison to other states, they spent a lot. So they're actually out there. They are doing these rehab projects. And then this site, when you go to it, you can't, it's not just the data you see, but you can see the actual projects and it breaks it down. It's like, oh, here's the I-95 project of Philadelphia. It's the big one for uh, Pennsylvania. And this is how much uh, the project costs and this is how much of it uh, used federal aid. And the rest, that means the rest of it is using the state tax money. It was significant, putting significant resources into this. And, and then I looked at my home state of Alabama where, uh, you know, born and raised, and they're using like way more federal dollars. Not a lot of state dollars are going. Uh, so Pennsylvania used like 40% of the 
uh, rehab was coming from state dollars versus federal. And Alabama was using like 75% federal money versus 25% state. But then you go out to California and they're using 75% federal money, 25% state. So it didn't matter where you were, whether you were red or blue, it was all over the map, which is fine. There's, there's no right or wrong answer to that. But the transparency is phenomenal. So shout out to the government for doing something right. Give credit where credit's due. Yeah. Mark this on your calendar <laughs> for the one occasion that they did something good for yeah. us. <laughs> now now do public schools. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I want them to do it for everything. Yeah. It was, yeah. Yeah. If it was up to me, they would show you exactly what they're showing you here. Like, okay, well, in defense, we spent this much money. And here's the top projects where all that money went. Oh, yeah. it's schooling, education. Here's where that went. Mm-hmm. I wish, I wish that, you know, this how much we paid in policing and fire. Everything that our tax dollars go to, you know, let us see that. I would like to know where this money is going. I don't know about you, Joey, but anything I invest in, I want to go look at how they're doing, how they're performing, and where that money went. Yeah, and also, too, uh, you guys know I'm part of a nonprofit organization, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, and any nonprofit in the country, every year they have to release a statement, you know, showing where all their money was spent as a nonprofit. Yeah, I would totally agree with the government doing the same thing because you get called out on things, and BHA gets called out on it, too, because because of where some some funds come from and how some funds are delegated, and obviously you're not going to please everybody what you're doing with the money and where the money is coming from. You know, not everybody's going to agree on anything, uh, on everything. So I would love to see that from the government. And, you know, we went to, uh, we started a revolutionary war over a two or 3% tax and we're paying 30 something percent tax now and we can't see where our money's going. Mm. Yep. And here we have, and here we have reached the political bridge. <laughs> yeah, this, this is where we stop. What kind of podcast do we want to be right now? <laughs> Don't edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> but I also want to give credit to some organizations that are out there. One that I'm involved in is PACA. It's the Pennsylvania Aggregates and Concrete Association. They work very closely with state legislators to make sure that they're aware of what projects need funding and what's most critical and what needs to be done from a compliance standpoint, a safety standpoint, a construction standpoint, saying, let's get this rolling. Let's make sure the legislation supports the people and it also supports the businesses so that we can all come together and make a serviceable community. And so I give credit to organizations like PACA. They're really spearheading this. They're not just leaving it up to the government, what state or federal, to just figure it out and know what to do. They're coming in and they're saying, this is what you need to do and this is why. And then it gets done. And that's probably why you see a place like Pennsylvania, who's uh, using way more state money than they are federal money. Part of that is because the taxes are higher and it's meant to go to that. But there's people directing that. That uh, they're directing the legislators saying, here, you need to put this money here. You need to put this money there. And it happens. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and it's also tough in Pennsylvania. They have a lot of things working against them when it comes to road and bridge construction. One, you have a lot of roads. Two, you have a huge state. And three, you have a lot of bridges. 
especially on the western side of the state, like around Pittsburgh and that Three Rivers area. I mean, you can't go anywhere without going over a bridge. So, I mean, there's there's a lot of challenges in Pennsylvania, and it's great to see that there's an organization out there that are, that are rising to the challenge. Yeah, the, what I found interesting uh, for my article um, is, uh, is a, was an article about driver retention. And I know across the industry, everybody likes to pick on truck drivers, you know, mixer truck drivers or dump truck drivers, you know, that are hauling sand and rock and cement and everything else. Everybody across the board talks some smack on truck drivers, myself included. We all have. But uh, this was an article I found interesting on uh, how to keep drivers. And there's a widely known issue throughout the industry right now that people are finding or having a hard time finding drivers and keeping drivers. Um, and what they're, they started doing surveys and they're doing all these other things that kind of figure out how do we keep drivers in these positions and how do we accrue new drivers? And just a couple things from that article was that drivers are obviously attracted to better pay and benefits and they want a more predictable schedule that affords them to plan their lives out more than 48 hours at a time. And I can certainly relate to that, to that at my old job. There'd be a few times on a Friday afternoon at about three o'clock and they'd want you to come in on Saturday, not knowing, you know, you wouldn't have any other prior notice. So you couldn't really plan your weekend. So you would hoped would have been your time off and you had stuff to do because you're working 12 hours, five days a week and you can't do any kind of errands during the week. And so stuff like that is what they're seeing that you know, is keeping drivers or keeping people from becoming truck drivers and they're having a hard time keeping them that way. So the NRMCA and the National Ready Mix Concrete Association, they have what's called a Developing Industry Leaders Program. And within that program, they have what's called a Workforce Development Group. And what they what they have done, they've sent out these surveys for what drivers want, uh, how they feel about their current job, uh, what could companies improve on uh, to make their jobs easier or uh, or anything like that? The best way they found that they could gather information about these guys was to have small group discussions like a safety meeting in a similar way of a safety meeting. Because once you get a group of guys together, they kind of feed off of each other. So instead of you just sitting down and filling out a survey, ranking something from one to five or not very to definitely or anything like that, they just get a group of guys together that were comfortable with each other. They were comfortable talking or talking around each other and they weren't afraid to voice their opinions around each other. And that's just the best way they got information. And so they just took, took their responses and they actually did this a lot in, uh, in the article. It said in Florida, Texas, and California, totally different cultures, totally different climates. Uh, there's nothing really similar about any, either uh, or any of these states, but the results they got from those surveys were very similar. Um, and they, they basically figured out they're going to have to do a couple of things to, to better retain these drivers. And that's, you know, pay at or above the market average because you're working, you're working such long hours. Your schedule is crazy every week. You don't know what the next day is going to bring. So that was one thing. And they also said that supervisors need to take an individual approach when they're dealing with drivers, uh, figure out what motivates them. If it's either pay time off, you know, some kind of incentives, uh, for the drivers, you know, to just show up to work and to recruit other drivers. 
some guys love being a truck driver. I mean, I drove a truck a little bit on, at my last job, but it was, you know, it was on private property. I didn't have a CDL or anything like that. It was at the airport, but I enjoyed, you know, delivering concrete, feeding the pump and shooting the breeze with the guys on the site. All the pump drivers, you know, all the pump operators knew me and uh, not to toot my own horn, but they asked for me sometimes because, you know, I did, I did a good job. I didn't make a mess and I, I, I was good to hang out with. And so, they they enjoy their job and they may not want to do that their entire career in the concrete industry and they may want to improve in some other aspect of the company and so that was another incentive that they have you know just some kind of career growth and that's not something you really think about with a truck driver you think you go and you drive a truck and that's what you do till you want to go do something else but you can start out as a truck driver and you know eventually be some kind of operations manager and grow within a company from being a truck driver. Um, more schedule structure. They really emphasize that, you know, if you're going to have a guy come in and work on Saturday, tell him by at least Wednesday afternoon or something like that. So he can plan ahead because we've all got families. We got stuff we want to do. I got stuff I want to do tomorrow. I wouldn't want active minerals calling me in the next couple hours and telling me, I needed to go do something tomorrow. You know, none of us would like that. Um, so just become more individual, uh, take a more individual approach with these drivers. And another thing I thought was interesting was the number one recruitment tool they had for getting truck drivers was other truck drivers. And it's word of mouth. Um, so I just thought that was a really interesting take on, you know, a part of the industry that we joke about and, it was just a different. It was just a different aspect on a part of the industry that uh, I thought was pretty interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. Is it is it safe to say that the the truck drivers and their place within you know the the total industry and what they do on a day to day basis is it safe to say that they've been kind of neglected over the years? Is that basically what this is saying? Um, maybe not so much neglected, um, but just that there's room for improvement. I mean, and they're just kind of figuring this out, especially with the driver shortage uh, that's going on. Uh, they're they're saying that companies are going to have to step up their game to recruit, mm-hmm. you know, good drivers and to keep the drivers they have. Yeah. Well, and the the first thing I thought when you said, you know, these companies are finding out that they need to take an individualized approach to each driver. They need to take the driver's personal life into account when they're scheduling with little to no notice. Thinking to myself, well, duh. <laughs> like, that, happens, that happens in pretty much every aspect of the job. I mean, mm-hmm. you have guys who may be on call. That way, the guys who aren't on call know, well, hey, I'm not going to be called in this week because another guy's on call. And, you know, that guy who's on call, he schedules his weekend around being on call. You know, I can do yeah. some things, but I can't travel too far away. But mm-hmm. if you want to take a vacation, pick a weekend where you're not on call and you won't have to worry about anything. Mm-hmm. Like these are these seem like very easily fixable things to to a degree to where it'll be easier to go out and recruit new truck drivers. But the fact that it's just happening now, this stuff seems so elementary to me. I was like, well, we're ju- we've just been neglecting and ignoring these truck drivers and their needs for so long. Now it's time they, they get a little pat on the back because they deserve it. They're, they seem quite no-brainers because that's the world we live in. As we're leaving. We work with highly technical people in our organization, 
And what do you want to do if you want to keep a highly skilled person? We do all the things Joey said. So you need to make sure the compensation package is at or above the other companies in the market that you're in. Oh, by the way, you also need to give these guys a career path. You know, I, I would never want anyone on our team to feel like there's not a plan in place for you, that there's a place for you to grow beyond where you are, beyond where I am, that there's there's a vision says, oh, here's the roadmap. Here's where I think we're going. And here's what you could do here if you'd like. And, and everybody wants to feel that. Like, you know, that is that individualized approach, but also a growth approach and say, hey, we want to invest in you. And right now, I don't think there's a lot of investment in concrete truck drivers beyond, hey, we'll pay you to get your CDL and then show up. You know, another thing that I think of when I think of concrete truck drivers is they're a resource that they tend to always know what's going on. So Joey, like you were saying, you show up and the pump guys want to talk to you. They want to have these conversations. That's every truck driver everywhere. They all get out. They're all talking. They're all chopping in love. And they just seem to know what's going on always. They've always got feelers and all the projects. They know all the companies and they know the ins and outs, not just the gossip, but really the attitudes on the ground and how things are going. You get a lot of information out of your truck drivers. Yeah. Another thing that I was thinking about too, like uh, when you think about or when you see a concrete truck on the road, that's basically a moving billboard for your company and that truck driver is out there driving around that truck. And I don't know how many people at a plant would see more people on different job sites than one truck driver and how that truck driver would say how that truck driver describes the company he works for could go could you know be leaps and bounds you know compared to you know so what somebody else would say so i want that guy that's talking to everybody else you know in town on all these jobs i want him talking about my company in a good way instead of him showing up to a job site uh, you know, this truck's a piece of junk. You know, I've had it. They can't, I can't get anybody to work on it. My air conditioner don't work. It's August. I got to work this weekend. I just found out it's Friday afternoon. You know, I'm missing my kids, whatever game. And, you know, just, I wouldn't want my driver belly aching on the job site. I'd want him to say, man, you know, I can't wait. I got off this weekend. You know, I'm not working. So other guys are on call. You know, I got a doctor's appointment next week and there's no problem with me taking off or, you know, whatever. Well, something that we do here with our team, we get asked regularly, hey, do you need anything else to do your job effectively? Mm -hmm. And how often are they asking truck drivers that, hey, what do you need to do your job right? Because they have answers. They probably just don't feel like there's any avenue to speak up in a lot of cases. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and in some cases, they, you know, they just take what – some guys say with a grain of salt, like, uh, that guy's just belly aching, you know, he's always needing and wanting some, but you know, you can't think, you can't really think like that when you're trying to run a successful business. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and if you're running that business, I'm going to talk in a hypothetical here, but you have to weigh what does it cost to train a new driver versus what does it cost to retain an experienced driver? Yep. You know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm not saying you need to throw a bunch of money at these guys and, and, you know, give them, enough perks to stay you, you need your employees to be happy mm-hmm. and that's company culture yeah and that starts yeah. from the top down yeah you know, we're real fortunate where we work where we have that type of culture but let's say in a concrete company if you have that type of culture from the top down where 
it's known like, hey, we want you to be able to do your job the most efficiently and effectively way possible, and we'll invest in that. Things mm-hmm. go a lot further. The, the, the retention is easy, the attitude is easy, the morale part is easy. And concrete plant, though, a lot of times is decentralized. So there may be like a main corporate people, but the plant managers in some case, in some situations. Uh, have a high degree of control and leadership at each individual plant. So it's it's tough job to have a corporate culture that exudes that you have the right leadership at each plant. It can have that communication with his drivers and say, all right, man, what do you need? What do you, what do you, what do you have for me? What do you know? And not just the truck drivers, you do that with your QC guys and Yeah, that bridge between, uh, I'll say this and then we can jump off to something else, but that bridge between the field and the, you know, the main office is something that's always going to need work. And those plant managers and the guys that are overseeing these truck drivers, they're a key, key part of that, of that bridge there. Yeah, for sure. That's a good point. Well, that's a great segue, actually, because, I mean, speaking about someone who bridges that gap between administrative work and, and field work and, um, you know, training and sharing knowledge with his employees, that's Mason Guarino. I mean, that's who we have on the show, and he'll talk about, you know, how he's invested in so many different aspects of the business there at South Shore Gunite and doing the work that he does. Uh, really excited about this interview. Um, Joey kind of took the reins on there, but Paul and I, you know, we asked some questions as well. Um, so without any further ado, our guest for episode number two on the Add 10 Gallons podcast, it's Mason Garino from South Shore Gunite. All right, guys, today we got uh, Mason Garino from uh, South Shore Gunite. Uh, Mason, how you doing? You look like you're out in the field there today. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm good. We're, we're in the field today. I'm, I've been in the field a lot lately. Uh, we're I'm on a job right now where we're pouring 100 yards on a roof. Uh, can't show it to you because I signed an NDA, but <laughs> <laughs> there'll be pictures on the Instagram page uh, when this project's done. Yeah, it's awesome. I know I know you do some pretty unique projects, and that's something we'll probably get into a little later. But uh, to start off, just tell us about uh, South Shore and uh, your guys' process. You're a little different than uh, some that we encounter in the industry, and there's some folks that might not know a whole lot about Shotcrete. So just kind of walk us through uh, what you guys do. Yeah, so South Shore Gunite is a, primarily a swimming pool company, and then around 2012, we started getting into non-pool Shotcrete work. So we still shoot a lot of pools. We shot three commercial pools in the last month, and then we're moving back into some non-Shotcrete work right now. Um, but there just wasn't a presence of Shotcrete in the Northeast, really. I mean, there was a couple international or national companies that swing through, uh, bang out a job, sometimes do well, sometimes screw it up and give us a bad name. Um, but I've just been working over the last, say, eight, nine years to essentially just grow Shotcrete and get things busier, educate on it, and keep myself busy, as well as just improve the Shotcrete name in New England. Good deal. Uh, can you expand a little bit on how you got your start in the industry? Uh, if I'm correct, you're that's a family-run business, is that right? I'd call it a Bob-run business and family works for him. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, my, <laughs> my uh, father started the company, started building pools back in the early 70s, and then has just grown and grown and grown. And uh, doesn't the subcontractors in our area, since it's so seasonal, they're, they're 
shoddy. Well, not necessarily shoddy, but like um, they don't communicate great. They say they can be great one year, poor the next year. So just over the years, he's brought in all the phases of swimming pool construction in house. Um, so we at this point we do absolutely everything that has to do with the swimming pool except for the electrical. Uh, and we're we've already sold. I mean, this year is a big year because of COVID, but we sold about 95 pools so far this year. Wow. It leads me into my next question about, you know, the future of the industry and how COVID is uh, has affected, you know, this year's projects and how it's going to affect next year's as far as designing and things that you know people hadn't really been able to get in the office and put together for, you know, 2021. How do you see that affecting things? Uh, I mean, so far, I, we're we're pretty much back to 100 um, percent. Everyone's back in the office now, but that wasn't the case a month ago. Um Construction took a hit for about a week and a half, two weeks. Uh, a bunch of commercial projects actually pushed back a year or so. So that's, I mean, a third of our business is commercial. So a third of our business got essentially cut in half for 2020. So hopefully those go in 2021. But we'll probably have more projects that also want to go in 2021 too. Mm-hmm. So that's the commercial side will be busy. Um, this reminds me a little bit of when gas prices were real high around 10 years ago, there was that initial um, drop in in uh, sales because of the, the stock market crash. Um, but then things started picking back up and people didn't want to spend as much money on traveling. They were spending more money on swimming pool construction. And we're kind of in that case again. So the re- on the residential side, people, people want to spend money in their backyards and stay home. And wow. they're sending money our way. <laughs> wow. And uh, are you seeing that also with like civil pro- civil projects and things like that? Uh, so far, the civil projects have been they've kind of just been steady. So I've heard some parts of the country they've been accelerating. Mm-hmm. I'm just getting onto a civil project in the next couple of weeks, and I, I haven't heard anything about that slowing or or speeding up, other than just a whole bunch more. The project that already has a lot of PPE now requires more PPE. Right, I got you. Um, and this, uh, you can you can kind of tie this in on where you see things going. I know you're involved with the American Shot Crude Association. Has there been any uh, been any talks uh, throughout the, that association about uh, where they see things going in other parts of the country, or uh, just anything in general? What is, what's the association's feedback? Well, the association is talking about how they, it was. It's kind of just shop talk, but it's like like down in Florida, they're they're excelling uh, DOT projects, allowing some of the projects to shut down highways during the day when previously it was just at night. Um, I hear a bunch of DOTs are doing that, and then the the ASA in general, where we've come to an agreement that we're all going to be doing our committee meetings remotely three or four times a year. Um, which will probably end up getting a lot more stuff done. And then when we do our spring and fall meetings, it'll be more board meeting type stuff, trying to push some things through and a lot more, essentially more time spent together gets more stuff done. Right. What uh, what exactly is your role in ASA now? I know you've kind of climbed the ranks and you've been involved with it for a long time. Yeah, I've been, I've been around the group since I think t- 2012 and going to a significant amount of the meetings ever since then and, and participating in the outside stuff too. And it's like, while the committee meetings get a lot done, you, you meet a lot of good people just going to the meetings and then going out for drinks afterward or 
are just really just talking a lot of concrete and learning a lot of stuff and it's a big part of how I've gotten to where I've gotten to by just hey how do I pump concrete 500 feet down a two and a half inch line Um, because no other industries really do that other than shockery and it's, Mm -hmm. it's opened up so many avenues about of how I can provide not just shockery but concrete uh, work to, to different aspects of the industry. How'd you find the ASA? Uh, my my dad was involved in it for uh, for a while, um, and then he didn't have as much time to put into it and asked me to attend some meetings. Um, so yeah, we were like uh, South Shore Gunning has been involved since since it's uh, started in two thousand. No, sorry, nineteen ninety eight. Are you involved in any other associations, or is ASA where you put most of your time in that in that realm? Uh, the the company is is participates in the National Plasterers Council and and some other stuff. But as far as me, I'm just heavily involved with the ASA. So you you brought did you bring that aspect of the pool building process in house as well? Like you have your own um, uh, pool plaster crew. Yeah, we have our own pool plaster crew too. What's uh, what's that industry like? Is it, I mean, because it's been a while since I've been to an NPC event it's probably been four or five years now if i had to guess but but back when i was heavily involved with that uh, not necessarily the technology but the art the artistic background of everything that part was just advancing at such a fast rate like every time you went to one of those events there was new products or new colors or they were putting different stuff in the plaster is it still like that where it's constantly changing yeah, it, it's really hard to keep up, and, and we try to stay ahead of everything, so we're always buying new equipment. Like, just fairly recently, we bought these new um, pebble polishers, so we do the pebble te- the pebble pool, the Wet Edge brand pebble pool, um, and then and Wet Edge uses Zaki Gel in their mix, too. We found that out one of the first times uh, we met with Joey. Um, helps stick up the walls. It's pretty cool. Uh but but yes, yeah, so we put the pebble application on and then let it let it harden. The next day we go back and use a, a polishing tool to bring out all the colors of the stone. Um, and then this year we found a new. Uh, a, it's a like, I think it's called Acid Magic. It's an acid wash solution that that essentially gets the concrete a little bit better than acid would, and it's not as caustic to the guys working around it, and it really brings out the colors. So there's there's a lot of aspects to the interior finish of a pool that people don't know about a lot of people just call the interior finish of a gunite pool gunite right right it's a lot more than that uh, mason what's one of the things like maybe in the past decade that you've seen has affected or improved the industry as a whole or maybe just for you uh, what's one thing you can think of uh, a lot of the education on shock rate in general, uh, the information the ASAs put out there. So when I when I'm talking to a new person that's never heard of shock rate before, or has doesn't know what it can do, or has heard a bad a bad story about it, um, I've been able to educate myself a little bit more on either why those certain things happened, or then like the ASA has the uh, so much information in their archive of their magazine archive that I can just pull links off there, email those to people. And it's like stories about how other people did that exact project in a different part of the country. Yeah. I always, I'm always fascinated by Shotcrete's ability to look like dang near anything. And it wasn't until I joined, uh, or AMI joined ASA 
And I started going to the meetings that I figured out or I discovered that, you know, skate parks are, you know, Shotcrete, all kinds of uh, uh, displays in the zoos and aquariums that you see all the time. And uh, just it's literally everywhere if you look hard enough. And uh, for the rehab projects, you never thought that would have been Shotcrete. Um, Everything, everything can be made with Shotcrete nowadays. I went down to Disney just before the COVID kind of kicked in and I was looking around and I started to drive my family nuts because I was like, guess what that's made out of? Shotcrete. <laughs> you know what that's made out of? Shotcrete. <laughs> yeah, I think we've all driven our spouses or families crazy and we've talked about it before about, you know, how we'll be uh, like doing putt-putt golf or, or something similar and we'll be off like looking at, you know, just some random rock that's hanging off the side of a wall. We're like, oh, that's Shotcrete. Look, feel. It just feels just like a real rock, but it's really concrete and yeah. they just think you're just biggest nerd and dork ever. So, right. Uh, kind of staying on point with how you can make Shotcrete look like anything. What's one of the more, uh, one of the most interesting projects you've worked on that you can talk about? Maybe not counting this one that you can't talk about. Uh, we, I've, we've done a couple over the years. One of the, one neat one. It was only, it was only four yards of material. Um, it was a dry mix bag, uh, pre-bag job that we did down in Hartford, Connecticut. It was, we were repairing the, the corners of the bell tower on a church. So our work, we had a movable work platform, um, mass climber scaffolding that started at 60 feet and went up to 80 feet. And we uh, repaired these octagonal shapes on each corner of the church. And we couldn't, I mean, there was active sidewalks below us uh, within like 20 feet or something. So we couldn't let any hit, anything hit the ground. So it took us eight days to install four yards of material just because every single time we moved, we had to redo all the protective and overspray and, and shavings, <laughs> shavings card. It, it came out pretty cool, and, and it looks good to this day. But that was that was definitely a, a tricky and interesting one. That's pretty wild. I know, uh, you know a couple of the guys might want to ask a couple more questions. I know, Paul, what uh, you had a question for Mason. Well, Mason, I'm very interested in the staffing of these high-end shockery companies and what i mean is you're in a really tough business you got guys that are coming here working really hard but you have some guys that are really skilled not just in a safety standpoint but some of these guys are artists carving up these rocks and making these pools just perfect now, how do you find qualified people like that uh we we do advertise throughout the country and have had a couple people come this way a lot of them don't work out that great even this, we had this one guy from Arizona. He came out. He lasted a week and said he had to go home because he felt claustrophobic because we had too many trees. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it it really it's a constant struggle. A, a lot of what comes down to it is uh, is we train a lot of our own people. We find people that have the aptitude for it and then teach them how to do it ourselves. Uh, I have one finisher that's been with us for before I've been heavily involved in Shotcrete, so he kind of helps and teaches the other guys what's going on. Um, But a lot of the current crew that we have right now, I've taught them everything. I mean, I learned from some old-timers growing up, and and they know concrete a little bit, but I've kind of helped hone their skills, and we just kind of really work together as a team to get into some of this stuff. Uh, I haven't touched the rock carving yet, but it's I've just discovered that we have a couple of masonry guys that are pretty good at it, and uh, we might get into that again soon. Yeah, that stuff's pretty neat. And 
uh, most of the time that I see that, it's uh, wet mix shotcrete. But you guys are doing dry mix, right? Uh, we do both. We do we do both. Um, and you can do it with both. I know Ryan Oaks over at Revolution Gunite is doing uh, a lot of rock carving with the dry mix side, too. Well, can you talk for those who are watching this right now that may not be shotcrete aficionados like you and Joey, uh, could you talk for a minute about what is the difference between wet mix shotcrete and dry mix that's often referred to as gunite? Yeah, so just try to do it quickly. Uh, wet mix shotcrete, you take a conventional concrete line pump, put a two and a half or two inch hose on it, and run it out to the, uh, the nozzle where you inject air into the uh, concrete as you're spraying it in the air, help shoot the concrete onto the receiving surface. Um, so it's conventional concrete, goes into a conventional pump, and it's just pumped down a line. Um, some of the pumps out there are better than others that are more designed for shotcrete and more designed to be used with a shotcrete crew, but you can call up the local concrete rental pump rental company and get a, a pump that can handle shotcrete. Um, the dry mix side, there's a special gunite gun or dry mix shotcrete gun that blows the sand and cement mixture down the uh, down the concrete hose with air. So there's essentially no water in the in the hose. It's just being blown with air, and then the nozzleman adds the water at the nozzle and controls the mix with just by eye and by experience. And so, why would you prefer? to go the dry way, the dry mix way, rather than the wet mix way? Uh, the dry mix way is, it's lower production, um, but it's a much easier stop and start and clean up. So if you want to just go out there and shoot three or four yards and take all day to do it, you can do that comfortably and easily with dry mix, and you're not going to have concrete setting up in the lines, setting up anywhere, because essentially as soon as you're, you're done shooting dry, you turn off the... Uh, feed bowl and all the material is blown out of the hose almost instantly and now you're ready to be down for an hour two hours or half the day or you can start up again in, in two or three minutes um, on the wet mix side it's the, it, there's a lot higher production you could comfortably do 70, 80, 90, 120 yards in a day if you had a place to put the material and enough finishers to keep up with it um, dry mix side, it kind of you can kind of max out at say 10 yards an hour. You might be able to get if you have a real good equipment, real good crew, a real dry sand. Like if you have wet sand on a, on a dry mix gun, your your day's ruined. <laughs> wow. um, but on the the wet mix side, it's a little it can be more forgiving, but it makes a much bigger mess too. <laughs> well, and you said. You're ordering the wet mix just from the local ready-mix guy, but if you're handling dry mix, what kind of trucks are you using? Uh, well, you can order you can order both from the re uh, local ready-mix guy. Um, we actually make both of ourselves. So we have um, volumetric batch trucks for the dry and the wet. Uh, they're different trucks, and we do a, like right now on our site, we have our portable silo set up, or the volumetric batch truck. I have an excavator sitting next to it, and we're just kind of setting up a mini batch plant and you're just going to town. We don't have to stop pumping until we're ready to stop pumping because it's continuous. That's awesome. Yeah, so yeah, you got a little mini batch plant out there. Pretty cool. 
What um so with the meter trucks, are you kind of limited to what materials you can use? I mean, or at least the 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 variety of materials. Uh, if I'm correct, you have maybe a rock band, a sand band, and a a cementitious band. Uh, are you pretty limited in that case? You pretty much, unless you want to get a custom made truck and then have extra silos to do fly ash or other stuff. I mean, it really is. It's sand, cement, aggr coarse aggregate, um, and then you can add liquids, you can add fibers, you can add some other stuff. But our truck's a little older, so we're pretty much just confined to uh, three dry materials and three three admixtures plus water. Gotcha. Yeah, you talked about the. I'm circling back to the guy that was claustrophobic because of the trees. Uh, it kind of leads us into a question we ask everybody: What's the most crazy or most interesting thing you've seen happen on a job site anywhere? I, I, you had mentioned that question when we were talking about doing this podcast, and I've been thinking about it for a couple of days now, and I, I don't have the greatest answers for that. Uh, just because I, what what we do like we don't like being the center of attention because we have lots of concrete pumping. We have concrete lines with a thousand PSI in them with loud equipment, big equipment. And we don't want people anywhere near us anyways, but whenever the shock Creek crew shows up on site, everybody comes to see what the shock Creek guys are doing. Um, Cause it's so new to them. So it's, it's almost like to, to someone from not the shock Creek world, what I do every day is what might be the most exciting thing or crazy thing that people do. Just um, over the winter, we were pumping. Um, we were pumping 750 feet long and up 85 feet high, and then making the concrete material stand up six, seven feet at a time, just through admixtures and and a good concrete mix. Wow. And, and that's just, that was only two and a half inch con uh, steel steel hose, so it's. Most people get afraid when they have to go 200 feet down concrete hose. At least half the pool guys do, and it's that's just another day for me. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, it's it just goes to show you how you know unique and and uh, just incredibly awesome shotcrete is. It's there's nothing else like it. It's a it's in a league of its own. Uh, and cra crazy things typically also have to do with not being that safe and maybe mm -hmm. having something explode or somebody do something stupid. And we, mm -hmm. we truly really try to keep that out of, uh, out of our crew. I mean, I, I teach all the guys how to inspect every single hose connection clamp as they take them apart and put them together. So we've, we've found clamps that were half failed and, mm -hmm. um, in concrete lines that have, you could see a hole through it, but it never failed because we caught it at just the right amount of time because everybody's always looking for it. Wow. So you're saying there's not going to be a South Shore Gunite reality show anytime soon? Well, typically anybody that's on a reality show isn't very good at what they're doing. <laughs> <laughs> I'll keep that in mind in case somebody ever approaches me for a reality show. It just means I'm terrible at what I do. <laughs> that's such a good point. I never thought, of that. I thought about that. Well, I mean, that's, I, I saw that there's this... This is towing show that's I don't know it's out of Canada or no I think the Canadian one's good or some somewhere in the middle of the country and I think every single episode they have a cable break. It's like if you're in the towing industry and you're you're doing this daily, you know that if a cable breaks, it can slice someone in half. So either you're setting this up or you're just really bad at what you do. Ten four. Yeah, I never thought of it that way. 
I, I guess, yeah, any reality show that you think of, yeah, there's something bad always happens because those people are kind of idiots. So. Oh, sorry. I do have one story. Um, it wasn't our fault, which is why I forgot about it. Um, <laughs> so we were working on a wastewater treatment plant, uh, replacing the um, the linings of the screw pumps. And all of a sudden we got a deluge of a rainstorm come in and we didn't think anything of it because we thought we were just working on the wastewater treatment plant, not knowing that when it rains heavy in that city, all the rainwater also comes to that plant. So we're we're shot creating one of the screw screw pumps, and this is where all the um, all the sewage from everywhere in the city and a couple of surrounding cities and water comes from. Um, and all of a sudden, the other two screw pumps turn on. There's only supposed to be one can keep up with the city most days, but then the other two turn on, and we have, we have plastic and tarp separating us from it. But um, it it essentially overloaded what was above it because somebody had turned something else off. So all of a sudden, the water at the top of this thing starts raising above the dam where where our concrete work is below, and it starts very slowly. So we're able to say, hey, everybody get the hell out of there. But essentially, raw sewage ran down fresh fresh concrete that we installed. <laughs> oh, that's so terrible. <laughs> That's pretty yeah, wild. So we, there. we got out of there, and then we made them clean it all up, and then had a little bit of chipping to do the next day. But there's so many toilet humor jokes I could just rattle off right now. If we didn't try to keep this PG. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, Josh, you got any other questions for Mason? I was I was curious because you talked a lot about uh, teaching your guys uh, not just safety and stuff, but uh, you know teaching finishers and and you know, teaching guys how to hone their craft and, and have that bring a benefit to your business, especially on the autistic side of things. And you already bring everything in-house anyway. Can you see uh, can you see you guys kind of branching off into uh, more of like a um, instructional or, or educational service, um, certifying your own guys or certifying other, other people's crews around the country? Have you guys kicked that idea around at all? Uh, we have, I've thought about it a little bit. It's maybe sometime in the future. Um, we're, we're kind of just trying to get ourselves to be really good at what we do and have enough guys to do it on a regular basis. Like we, we, I wouldn't say we put on a show, but we, we try really hard at what we do and we're working really hard every day. So we don't really have that extra time to help potentially train other crews or teach other people. Um, I have an Instagram page, SSG Shawcrete, and I try to just—I don't—I don't, I don't want to hide anything. I want to share everything that I do because I want somebody else in the con- country. Because I—I've had those bad days, and I know how bad those bad days can be. And if I just had a little bit of information that would have made my day not horrible or that week not horrible, I—I want to share that with somebody else. All right, that's—it's well, a pretty noble thing to do. I mean. Is the whole industry kind of like that, or do you have some guys who are super guarded and, and other guys who are like yourself, or, or does everyone pretty much share information? I'm thinking, I mean, the, I don't see it shared often. I mean, right when I was getting into it, I, I had a lot of people give me good information, but a lot of it was from, from West Coast guys who who they they have good con- good concrete, good shotcrete mixes. They don't have to teach their ready mix supplier how to make a shock mix so i wish someone at the very beginning told me hey if you're having trouble just add a little bit more cement and make sure you cure it good at the end 
because cement is how things pump. And if they, if I just, that first job, if I just went up to 850 pounds or 900 pounds of cement in my mix, I could have got the job done and figured out how to dial that cement back in the next couple of jobs. But I was trying to run with 750 pounds because the West Coast guys said that that should work. But they didn't share the other little aspects of, they said, make sure you have good graded sand and you should be fine. Well, it's a lot more than just good sand. It's good sand. It's good aggregate. It's fly ash that, that wasn't available at this ready mix plant. And if you don't have fly ash, uh, you've got to use either more cement. I use AccuGel because <laughs> it makes my <laughs> life a lot easier. <laughs> um, but you need you you got to have a good mix, and there's a lot of different things that can go into a good mix depending on what part of the country you're in. Mason, you talked about having a good sand. I remember, uh, I guess it was the first time I came up there to one of your job sites, and you were uh, you were checking the quality or how much fines were in the sand with uh, water in like a jar. Is that right? I know it's yeah, not so, anything official, but kind of tell tell us more about that because I thought that was pretty interesting. It's not they uh, I don't think there's a scientific test behind it, but I basically take a, a clear cylinder, fill it halfway with sand, and then top it off with water, and then shake it up real good. Um, and then when everything settles down, you all the, the coarser sand goes to the bottom and the finer sand sits to the top. Now, it's not going to tell you how much fines you have, but it'll show you if you have way too many fines. So, like, I've, I've done this with, like, if you have a, um, a dry screen sand and do that with it, you'll have a very substantial amount of fines at the top. But if you have a wash sand, you'll have a lot less. So it was kind of just to confirm that we did get, the dry screen, uh, sorry, we did get the wet, uh, the wash sand, wash concrete sand versus the dry screen sand. That's really cool. I, I've thought about that since since I visited there, and then uh, yeah, I finally got a chance to ask you about it. But that's really cool to me. Well, Mason, how far do you how far do you go? Like, what's your radius for how far you'll go for a job, and and how much do the materials differ from region to region? Uh, we pretty much do all of New England and a little bit of eastern New York. And, like, if you're up in, uh, let's say, like, at least around us, sand is cheap. We can get a lot of sand right where we are for maybe 14 to 16 bucks a ton delivered. But if you're down in, like, the border of New York and Connecticut and you want real, co real concrete sand, you're looking at 45 bucks, 50 bucks a ton delivered. Or... Or you get into New York a little bit, and they're just like, well, Connecticut guys don't deliver to here. We only have manufactured sand. And manufactured sand is all coarse. So it's, it, uh, I, I'd like to try it again someday, because I, I, my mix design knowledge is a lot more now. But I definitely struggled on that job. And, and the first couple loads of manufactured sand that we tried to use, we just got rid of and paid more to have regular sand brought in because it worked. Well, that was a question I was going to ask you because it sounded like you were learning these designs and on the fly. And Joey and I went to school for that. But when Josh came on board with our group, he actually started learning in the field and then went back to the lab and then went back and got formal training. So he went and did all the NRMCA classes and got all those certifications. Have you looked into doing anything like that? I took a couple classes that Ken Hover taught out at the World of Concrete one year, and just those few classes taught me, uh, gave me a ton of information about what I'm doing. And uh, a big thing that I'm into is really just shock rate and, and grout mixes and, and low, low slump, 
high pumpability mixes. So uh, I'm, I have a, I know a lot about what I'm doing. I definitely like to learn more, but time to go to class just isn't really there right now. Yeah, well, there is a really good one that the NRMCA does uh, do a short course. So yeah, I mean, it takes a week of your life to go and do yeah. this. The things you learn in it are phenomenal, and it was basically what Joey and I went to school for, and they cram it into four days. <laughs> Take four years of work and cram it into. <laughs> but what was interesting for Joey and I, we, you know, had our textbooks and stuff for concrete, but shotcrete was like one paragraph on one page out of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages of these books. And so then we get out and we get in and we realize there's so much more to this industry and it may be beneficial if more people can be educated on it and then come in and really lift shotcrete to new heights. Yeah, that'd, that'd be great. Cause I mean, just look at fly ash right now. There's some cities and municipalities that aren't allowing fly ash because they think it is a, a hazardous material and you know what as a as a dry powder that could just blow away in the wind it probably is a hazardous material but add it add to concrete with some water and you have something that's more finishable it's stiffer it pumps easier it, there's a lot of really good aspects to the to that material yeah going back to uh I remember, Paul, I remember when you and I discovered shotcrete in our textbook and you said it was that one paragraph and it had like a little picture of a nozzle and just sh shooting shotcrete onto something. We thought it was the coolest thing ever because we were just we were just familiar with ready mix and everything else that they'd been teaching us. But we always thought shotcrete was just super cool. And then we get in get into the industry and uh, discover how big it is. And I think uh, you can credit the the American Shotcrete Association for spreading the word you know on you know good shotcrete and how shotcrete can be used for absolutely anything there's you go on their their website and there are limitless you know materials and and papers and all kinds of other things and and you guys uh i don't know mason if you've been involved with it but they do the nozzleman certification you know that train guys to properly uh shoot shotcrete so i think you give all the credit in the world to the American Shockery Association. Yeah, I've, I've been through the certification process three times now. Once when I was 17, <laughs> I just skipped skip, skip school to get to participate in it and then got certified the next time around, recertified, and then I'm actually up for another recertification this fall. Good deal. Well, uh, Paul, Josh, if uh, you guys got anything else? No, I'm I'm good. We really appreciate your time, Mason. It was a it was a good good talk. Learned a lot from you. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I I enjoyed this too. Hopefully, maybe when we get a few episodes in, do this again sometime. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, remind everybody again where you can find the South Shore on uh, Instagram or any of your other social media channels. So South the South Shore Gunite Pools is a uh, SSG. Sorry, at SSG Pools on um, Instagram and Facebook. And then I run the uh, SSG Shotcrete Instagram that's at SSG Shotcrete on Instagram where I try to I've, – I've shared exact mixed designs of what I use regularly on, on my page there. So I have nothing to hide, and I, I get messages from people on, hey, I'm struggling. How can I get this um, to work better? And I, I share lots of information on there too. So, um, yeah. Follow me on those and, and ask questions if you have stuff. And 
let me know if you, you want to come help South Shore Gunning with anything, too. <laughs> <laughs> that, that IG page is awesome. Uh, yeah. It's one of my favorite concrete photos out there because it's real life stuff. It's not some guy flying a drone trying to be fancy. Look at us. No, it's like, hey, this is an awesome job. Look what we're doing. Or, hey, we had this problem. This is how we overcame it. And these are mixes. It's a great follow. I encourage everyone. Yep. Yeah, you. you won't find uh, you won't find many people posting mix designs up on their up on their social media thing. That's that's something new. That's probably something that's never been uh, never been done in the concrete industry. Because we have a hard time just asking people what kind of rock you know they got in their mix. I mean, they won't tell you nothing. Some of these guys guard it like it's script. So yeah, I, I don't know if somebody else out there can can have an easier time with shotcrete. It can make them look them and shotcrete look better. And they're part of the country, and who knows if it gets up to mine or gets somewhere else. It's what's good for shotcrete is good for everybody that does shotcrete. Yeah, that's right. What's the quote? Uh, a rising tide raises all ships. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Good deal. Well, Mason, we really thank you for uh, coming on here today, and we'll for sure have you on again. Yeah, guys, thanks for having me. Thanks, bud. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that'll do it for this one. Uh, episode two is in the books, and we certainly appreciate you being here with us. Uh, special thanks to Mason once again for being our guest on uh, on this episode. Thanks for all the, the wisdom and information and insight and stories that he shared. Uh, we had a good time with it, and uh, we hope you all enjoyed it as well. Uh, be on the lookout for episode three coming soon, and until then, take care.